All right, if you got your Bibles, open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. So on Sunday nights for the next however long it takes us, uh, we will be going through the book of Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. Okay, now, the book of Revelation is probably the most difficult book in the Bible to study and interpret. The reason is, is, is kind of twofold. One, it's, it's prophetic and uh, apocalyptic, meaning that it's telling us in things that are happening in the future uh, as we get to the end of time as we know it, uh, or the end of time on this earth. I guess as believers, our life is now eternal with Christ, but end of the time on earth. And it's filled with, with symbols that, that we have to figure out how do we interpret this. Is this a symbol? Is this to be taken literal? Is this to be taken symbolically? Uh, what does this mean? And there's no kind of, of key or guideline to stack it up next to, not for all of them. So like in the Old Testament, if we see symbols given by the prophets, we can kind of look historically, we can kind of look at the rest of the Old Testament, we can kind of say, okay, this is what that means. And we can see even how it plays out in the New Testament, say this is what that means. That's not the case with Revelation because the symbols and the prophecy that it's talking about, they have not yet occurred. So there's a difficulty in studying Revelation, not, not that it can't be understood, but a difficulty in approaching it because of the symbolism. At the same time, we have to remember that this was an epistle. This was a letter written by an apostle to a group of Christians. And so we've got to take that into account. As we've talked about with all the other books that we've studied, as we kind of talked about the rules for studying God's Word, um, it's important to take the context of the original author to the original audience into play as things are written. So the difficulty in Revelation is Understanding the original context, or trying to keep it in context, while at the same time looking at the future events, or the future events to come, and the symbolism there, and trying to make a, a biblically solid, biblically faithful, kind of cohesive understanding of what all is going on. So that's what we're going to be doing, but just kind of laying that out there. Now, before we even open up the book... I want us to understand, just because I want us to, to understand kind of where I'm coming from. I kind of want us to be all on the same kind of level playing field. When you approach the book of Revelation, because of the symbolism, because of everything else, because of the prophetic nature of the book, there are four main methods of interpretation that have been kind of formulated or grasped onto over the history of studying the book. Now, I'm going to list them in from... The one that I, I completely don't think is, is valid at all up to the one that we're going to be using as our interpretive method as we kind of study God's Word. But I want you to be aware of all of them. So the first is the historicist. The historicist a method of interpretation basically keeps the focus on the history of the Western church. So the church uh, kind of as it grew out of Europe, as it grew out of uh, Catholicism with the Reformation, as it came back to the United States and the church that has grown up here, uh, the historicist view of interpreting Scripture looks at it solely through the eyes of of the last couple hundred years, solely through the eyes of what's been going on in the Western church. 
Uh, says so this is the, the first we'll look, or sorry, it views the revelation as a symbolic prophecy of the entire history of the church from the return of Christ to the end of the age. It focuses on the Western church, primarily keeping kind of the big symbols like the beast and the false prophet, assigning those to the Pope and to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this really kind of focuses on, like I said, once the church comes out of that. And so they look at the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. They're the evil ones. They're the bad guys. We came out of the Protestant Reformation, so uh, we're kind of the good guys. They typically follow what's called the newspaper approach, uh, kind of meaning they kind of uh, are constantly looking at kind of current events to say, oh, well, this is going on. This happened in Israel today, and so uh, that means I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm just making this up. I'm not making a statement at all. But it's like the Congresswoman AOC said that she wanted to uh, cut all funding from Israel. So someone that kind of follows this mindset would look at the newspaper and kind of see that story and say, oh, well, because she's doing that, she's uh, the false prophet or she's the beast. And because this other uh, congressman is following the same suit, they're this. They try to constantly seek what's going on in the news and kind of assign meaning to that through the symbols of Revelation. So here's some of the faults with this method of interpretation. One, it's incredibly subjective. You make any symbol mean whatever you want to outside of any parameters that Scripture gives us. Uh, It has to change with each kind of phase of history once things don't work out the way that they thought or reworked with each uh, period of of history. Uh, It totally ignores the context of the original audience. And one of its biggest flaws is it deals solely with the Western church, ignoring that there's a church in Africa and Asia that they're going through completely different things than we are here. The church in America, we have great freedoms. We have great uh, opportunities to spread the gospel, to meet together openly and not be afraid of persecution. While over in Asia, over in the Middle East, uh, churches there have to meet secretly or in homes or they could be killed or they could be arrested because of their faith. And so this method of interpretation looks solely at the Western church, ignoring the rest of the world. And we know that the Bible is not written just to us, but it was written for all believers of all time. So... I don't consider that a great method of interpretation. Next, idealist, or the second, idealist. This, me, or this, these, this approach kind of lists everything is an allegory, or everything is symbolic. They would say that the symbols uh, that are listed throughout the book of Revelation don't actually tie to any historical events. They don't tie to anything that actually happens here on the earth. That all of this has already happened or is happening in heaven. That this deals mainly with uh, kind of the battle between God and Satan and God or the church and the world. This is all kind of not real life, not actual stuff that is happening, but it's all stuff that just kind of happens spiritually. They would say that right now we are in the millennial reign of Jesus as he is sitting on his throne in heaven. And so we're just kind of hanging out on earth. He's reigning in heaven. Satan's already been locked up. Satan is gone. Satan is in the lake of fire right now. Uh, And we're just kind of uh, waiting for Jesus to come back. And the second coming and the time when he judges uh, everyone lost and saved, uh, that all happens at the same time. 
So I don't, now, I will say that that's become very much more uh, popular here as of late. Those who kind of hold to this, or they're called amillennials, and among a lot of young evangelicals, people my age and younger, uh, this has become kind of the popular view. I don't hold to it, but this has become kind of a popular view that is making a comeback. Third, preterist. This focuses on the historical context. As we study God's Word, part of the things that we hold as valuable, as hold as important, is the context of the original author to the original audience. That's important. It's important to help us understand it. Well, they base, a preterist bases all of their understanding on this idea of historical context. They would argue that all of the prophecy listed in Revelation is actually history. For us, it's already happened. They say that all of this happened by A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem by uh, by the Roman army, by the Roman government. And so they would say that everything that we read in the book of Revelation has already happened, and all of it was completed and done by A.D. 70. That this was written to a group of believers who were... um, Well, let me read this because this uh, uh, commentary author says it fairly well said the church is threatened by the growing demands of emperor worship and entering into a period in which their faith is to be severely tested. Persecution will increase, but those who endure uh, will share in the final victory of God over the demonic powers that control and direct the totalitarian state. So they look backwards and say because Rome uh, was this, this godless nation that kind of dominated the world at this time, dominated Israel at this time, this was the closest time to Jesus. And when Jesus was on earth, he would say stuff like, I'm leaving, but I will come again soon. They take that very literal. And so they take um, all of this to happen, written to the churches saying, look, persecution is going to come. A tough time is going to come. But know that Jesus is going to win out in this very, very small window of time. Some of the earliest persecution of Christians had already happened or was happening around this time. Uh, And so they were saying, look, it's a tough time, uh, but know that all of this is about to be over. God's going to take care of it all. Jesus is going to win. So they would say that everything that happens in the book of Revelation has already happened. By AD 70, it's all done. So as we read the book of Revelation, a preterist would argue that it's all done. We're not looking forward to any of this stuff. It's already happened. I don't agree with that. There's parts of it that are good for us to kind of look at and lean on and to remember, especially the original context or keeping that prevalent. But I don't believe that that's the best way either. The stance that we're going to take is the futurist. The futurist looks to the future. The futurist looks at the book of Revelation as a prophecy of events that will come that will bring about the fulfillment or the consummation of God's plan. Of God's plan to redeem mankind through the blood of Jesus Christ and draw men to Himself and establish His kingdom for eternity. So the futurist looks at the book of Revelation and says this is all stuff that's going to happen in the future as God brings His plan to completion. Now, here's where the the, the break-off happens. There are two different camps within the futurist method of interpretation. And so the two main camps or the two views that kind of break off within the futurist interpretation are dispensationalism and uh, classical. So this is what the differences are. Dispensationalism, it's a method of interpreting Scripture that began in the mid-1800s. It's about 200 years old by now. 
Here's the key factors of a dispensationalist. They believe that God's whole plan revolves around Israel. That God took uh, through Abraham, he made Abra- that Israel has chosen people. He made promises to Abraham. He made covenants to Israel. Israel rejected God. Israel failed. And so God put Israel on the shelf. And now he is using the church. And what the, when the rapture happens at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, they say that the, the, God takes the church and then he takes Israel off the shelf and Israel becomes kind of his chosen people again. Israel becomes kind of, they're back on the main stage. They're back on the big stage. And so the dispensationalists see a very clear distinction between the church and Israel. In fact, as you read through the book of Revelation, uh, this kind of is one of the main things that drive how they view the book. They would look at, well, I skipped this. I should have said this. A dispensation is a period of time. So a dispensationalist looks at the Bible, typically broken up into seven dispensations or seven periods of time that says God interacted with humanity differently in these different dispensations. And so they would look at the letters to the seven churches uh, in in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 as these are not real churches, but these are instead different dispensations or they are representative of different times within church history. So the letter to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, this is written to the the earliest uh, church right after Christ, so the church was being born. Church of Smyrna, that's, that's another dispensation, maybe a couple hundred years later, and it kind of moves on like that. And so many dispensationalists look at the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, they say this is when the rapture happens. So a dispensationalist will look at Revelation 4.1 where it says, um, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So a dispensationist looks at that when John was called to come up, that that is representative of the rapture. And so then everything that happens afterwards with the the bowls being poured out and the scrolls being opened and all of this stuff uh, is referring to a time when the church has already been ascended into heaven or raptured into heaven and God has taken the nation of Israel and once again made them His chosen people that He was going to work through primarily. All right? Then you've got classical. Now this is the earliest view held by the church fathers. Uh, the earliest church fathers, this is the view that they held. So it's the oldest of all the views. It sees no distinction between Israel and the church, but it's all the continuation of one story based on God's plan to redeem mankind through His Son. And there is no distinction, there is no separation of Israel and the church Classical does not hold to any dispensations, that it's all, like I said, one thing. It's not broken up into times. Uh, The seven letters are not representative of periods or ages, but they are literal churches that are being written to. Just like Paul wrote to the book of of Colossians that we're looking at on Sunday mornings, as he wrote to the church in Colossae. These are actual, legitimate churches that John is writing to. Uh, those who hold to the classical hold that the whole church, not just Israel, will pass through the tribulation. Uh, they hold that the rapture happens simultaneously as the second coming of Christ at the end of that seven-year tribulation and view many of the symbols as symbolic. Uh, The main thing that these two agree on is that the letter is futurist, that the letter is looking forward to what comes ahead uh, as Jesus Christ fulfills His plan. Now, my view is 
the classical view. But here's what we're going to do. Because I know that that's not the popular or prevailing view. I know that the dispensationalist view is. As we go through the book, as we go through uh, the different sections of Scripture, we're going to look at both of those. And we're going to, to deal with them both fairly and equally. Because I believe the futurist is the best way to interpret it. And so we're going to look at both of these. We'll lay them both out, and then you'll be able to make up your mind whichever one you desire to do. So if you hold to the view that, hey, there's going to be a rapture, then there's going to be uh, uh, the seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist rises up, and uh, Israel, you've got the 144,000 witnesses, and, uh, and, and then Jesus comes back, and then there's a thousand-year reign. That's great. We're going to look at that, and I'm going to show you why that is support, or why that view is held according to Scripture. If you say, look, I don't know, but Cam, I want to hear your view. And my view is that Christians and the church will be here during the tribulation. Jesus will come back at the, or the resurrection or the, the rapture, excuse me, will happen at the same time of the second coming. Then there's a thousand year reign. All of that's the same. Uh, then you'll see that as well. And you'll just be able to make up your mind on whichever one you choose. So my desire is to be fair with both of those to show why they are there. I'm going to tell you why I, I view the way that I view. But I do want to be fair. I do want to be open because I know that there are different views. Uh, than mine, and I know that this is not an essential. This is not something that we have to believe and hold on to to be Christians. Whichever view you take, even if you take one of the views that I've said that we're not even going to consider or use, like the historicist, doesn't make you a Christian or not. What you believe about the end times does nothing to impact your salvation or your relationship with Jesus. Okay. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We're just kind of look at this as the introduction. Uh, so we'll read, and then, uh, then we'll just kind of go through the introduction and kind of lay it out for us. Because it kind of helps lay out kind of the purpose and the theme of the book for us. All right, chapter 1, Revelation, starting with verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is with you, or who, excuse me, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king of the earth, ruler of kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alright, so as we're building this introduction, the first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is we see the author. Uh, well, we understand that the author is ultimately God, uh, but the, the, the Revelation, the book of Revelation, was written by John, John the Apostle. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, how do we know this is John uh, the Apostle, not just some 
other random John. We know that's a fairly popular name during this time. We had John the Baptist. We have John the Apostle. There are other Johns uh, mentioned in the New Testament. It says in verse 2 that who bore witness to the Word of God, remember that's Jesus, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Listen to the words of John in 1 John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. As John writes in that first epistle, that first letter of John, he writes saying, look, I'm telling you about this Jesus that I've seen, that I've experienced, that I've touched, that I've heard, that I have this relationship with. He is not just some mythical being. He's not someone that someone made stories of. I have seen him. I lived with him as his apostle, as his disciple for three years. I heard him. I've touched him. I saw him after he raised. I saw and I touched the scars on his hands and on his side after he was resurrected from the dead. It's the same thing that's being said about the author here that he was witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ and that he told all that he saw. And so the same John that was this faithful witness in the book of John is the same faithful witness that has given this testimony, uh, this, this prophecy of what is to come. So we see that John is our author. I think it's also interesting to to note, as you read through the Gospel of John, John often calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. As you look through the Gospels, you see that Peter is kind of the, the, the unquestioned leader of the, of the apostles. He's kind of the, he's the one that walks on the water. He's the one that answers all of Jesus' questions first. Uh, he's the one that, that um, is talking with Jesus. And Jesus says, on your testimony, I will build my church. Uh, he's the one that uh, Jesus sits down and has that conversation with where he says, lead my church, uh, feed my sheep, uh, care for them. Peter was kind of the leader. He was the one that preached at Pentecost that saw those thousands of people saved. He was unquestionably the leader, but maybe the one that was the closest to Jesus, that had the closest, most intimate relationship, was John. And so I think it's interesting that John, being the closest to Jesus, writes this letter or writes this epistle about Jesus' returning and about Jesus coming back. All right. In verse 3, we see that there's a blessing uh, linked to the reading of this book. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. John, as he writes this introduction, as he writes to these churches, he very plainly says, look, it is a benefit, it is a blessing for you to read this book. Once again, I understand that this book can be daunting. I understand that it can be uh, a little scary at times. You look and there's so much symbolism, you don't know what to do with it. But remember, this was a letter written to churches. That even though I don't agree with all the preterist view that it was all happened, they're all completed by AD 70, they do keep the right view in mind that this was written to churches who had undergone persecution and that persecution was coming. 
And it is a reminder that Jesus Christ wins. It is a reminder uh, that no matter what you go through, no matter what happens, there is hope. So the blessing of reading this book, the blessing of studying this book, is that this is a message of hope. Let's not get so bogged down by the prophecy and all the stuff that's going to happen and trying to figure out the timelines and everything else that we forget that this was a letter written to Christians who are struggling with temptation and temptation that was to come. And it's a message of hope. It's a message and a reminder that Jesus Christ wins, that no matter what we're going through, no matter how dark things might get with with, uh, an antichrist and all of this other stuff, understand and remember that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Jesus, and Jesus wins. All right, verses 4 through 5. We see that John's greeting of grace uh, or invokes grace and peace from the triune God. Now remember, if we're looking at this and the theme of Revelation is ultimately about hope, John centers his hope in the triune God, in God. As he makes this greeting of grace and peace, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Once again, these are not just just kind of, uh, hey, how's it going type random words that are being thrown out. Paul or John is uh, reminding them of the grace and the peace that come from God. Reminding them that no matter what happens, there is grace, there is peace in the darkest of times. And he bases this grace and this peace not in your circumstances, but in God. It says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, who is to come. That is a reference to God. That is a reference to God the Father. That is a reference to to Yahweh, the the name of God that the Israelites won't even use, the, the one who is eternal, the God who is king, who sits on his throne and does whatever he pleases. That is a reference to the Father who is in control of all things. It's a reminder that God's eternal. He was, He is, He is to come. That no matter what we're going through in our life, that our God, He has always been, He he is now, and He always will be. That He is eternal, and He can be trusted. He has never gotten kicked off His throne. He will never get kicked off His throne. Remember, Christians under this time, there are emperors who rise up, whether it's Nero who, who takes Christians and kills them and, and lights them, um, douses them with oil and lights them as, as uh, uh, lanterns to light his garden parties to uh, Domitian and all these other emperors who all your neighbor had to say was, hey, this guy's a Christian and you could be killed or thrown to the gladiators or thrown to the wild animals to be, to be eaten alive and to be killed for the sport of other people while other people cheered simply for being a Christian, simply for naming the name of Christ. This was a scary time for Christians. This was not the best time. Even for the next couple of hundred years after this book was written, it was not an easy time for Christians. And so to go through this difficult time, once again, your faith had to be built on something more than, than, hey, everyone else is doing this because everyone else was not doing this. There's a great cost to being a Christian. And as John writes this letter, he says, remember the one who is, who was, who is to come. God has a plan. God has a purpose. This is not catching God off guard. Trust in Him who loves you and is good and is on His throne. So he says, grace to you and peace from Him who was, who is, who is to come. Next he says, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. 
So what are the seven spirits? What does that mean? Well, there's two main views. One view is that these are some kind of special angels. And another view is that this is the Holy Spirit. I take the view that this is the Holy Spirit, uh, as do the majority of, uh, of commentators and people who study the book of Revelation. Here's why he talks about seven. There's, there's only one Holy Spirit. He's not split up into seven things. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see the number seven a whole lot. And the number seven is representative of the idea of completion or the idea of fulfillment, the idea of perfection. And so when he talks about the seven spirits, he's talking about the perfection or the completeness of the Holy Spirit. It's one spirit. The number seven refers to the completeness and the perfection of his work and his character. So as Paul, or as John, excuse me, as John is writing this letter to believers, as John is writing this letter, and he is reminding them of the hope that they have. He starts off with God and he moves to the Holy Spirit, the one who is perfect, the one who empowers them, the one who strengthens them, the one who guides them, the one who gives understanding, the one that when things are getting difficult, it is the Holy Spirit which, which points us back to Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit that, that comforts us with the grace and the peace of God. It is the Holy Spirit that brings back to our hearts and brings back to our minds who God is and, and who Jesus is and what He has done for us. It is the Holy Spirit that works in our lives for our sanctification, for our purification, for our walking with God. He empowers us. And so as he writes this letter of hope, he says, remember, 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 the, remember the, God, the God who is in control, who sits on His throne. Remember the Holy Spirit who is perfect, who is at work in your life, who will guide you and lead you and protect you in this time. And then in verse 5, He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Now, we talked about that a little bit this morning in Colossians. The firstborn of the dead, that Jesus Christ, His resurrection is what establishes our faith. He was the first, not the first person to ever be resurrected. We've even seen Jesus resurrect two people in Mark before He was resurrected. But He was resurrected as the God-man. He was resurrected as the one who conquered sin and death, who gave us hope and peace. He was the one who resurrected to establish the Christian faith, to give us something to look forward to, to bring us life out of death. Once again, as you're going through this hard time, as this hard time is to come, remember that there is hope. There is hope that there is a God who is on His throne. There is a hope and a Holy Spirit who is there to guide us and strengthen us and encourage us along. And there is a hope in Jesus Christ who established our faith as the firstborn of the dead and who is the ruler of the kings on earth. No matter what kings might do, no matter what antichrist might rise, understand that God is always in control. And everything that happens, happens according to His will and according to His plan. Though there might be suffering that is temporary on this earth, God is always in control. And because of Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, we have a promise of a hope that is to come. And then verses 5 and 8, we close with John's greatest encouragement is that Jesus has saved us and is coming again. Look at verses 5 through 8. Or the end of verse 5. It says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. So that's, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ had died for us. He's conquered our sin. He's freed us from our sin. His blood covers our sin. We are His. Verse 6. 
and made us a kingdom, priests to His God. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has, or Jesus has brought us into God's kingdom. We have been adopted into His family. He is our King now. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are priests to God, joint heirs with Christ. Verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all tribes of the earth will well on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here John reminds us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but also He is coming with the clouds Every eye will see. And those who pierced and all tribes will well on account of Him. Even so, Amen. This is a reminder once again to a people who are struggling. To remember, Jesus Christ is coming. You're not being left alone. You're not being left here by yourself. Understand that there is a plan. At the end of this plan, when this plan is brought to consummation, when this plan is brought to fulfillment, when this plan is brought to perfection, it ends with Jesus Christ. Christ coming back to earth. Jesus Christ coming back to bring, uh, honestly, the picture that He picks or uh, pictures that He shows is for us it's a good thing, but for those who are the enemies of God, it says, and all the tribes on earth will well on account of Him. It's not a pretty picture. It's a message that says, for those who are believers, the coming of Christ is a glorious, glorious thing. But for those who do not know Christ, the enemies of God, and we'll get there in the book of Revelation, but for the enemies of God, the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is a time where He destroys His enemies, where He sets Himself up as King. It's a time where He is victorious and His enemies are punished. And so as believers, He is encouraging the believers, understand righteousness is still coming. Justice is still coming. It is coming in Jesus Christ. For us, it's a glorious time. But for those who don't know Jesus, understand, vengeance is mine. Thus says the Lord. It's what the book of Romans tells us. And so John ends this introduction. This introduction reminding them that hope comes in Jesus. That Jesus will come again. Now remember, if we're going to keep our immediate context in Inside, if we're going to keep our context of our author to our audience, the audience is a group of churches who have, who have undergone some persecution and that God knows persecution is coming. And it's a reminder that there is hope. No matter what you're going through, no matter how dark life gets, no matter how difficult life gets, there is hope. And that hope is in the triune God. And that hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back to bring with Him peace, but also justice. And then he closes out with God saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end is what that means. The first and the last, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's kind of like God kind of putting His stamp on it. That's like God saying, look, I've said all this. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last. Who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty. There is no one greater. If I have said this, if I have made this proclamation that Jesus is coming back and you're going to have hope, here's my stamp of approval. Here's my seal. If I've said it, it's going to happen. 
So the book of Revelation, as we look at it, we'll see all the symbolism and everything else. Once we get into chapter 4, that's when everything really starts getting into uh, all the symbols and what does this mean, what does that mean. We're going to look at all that, but let's not forget that this is ultimately a book of hope. It's a book to remind us that ultimately, no matter what happens in our world and in our lives, Jesus Christ reigns and Jesus Christ is coming again and there is victory and there is hope and there is perseverance in that knowledge.